talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bob. Hey, hey, hey. The scooter, the Welcome the to Dirty Kurt's Dugout. Hello, everybody. This is Kurt Mavakwa, and I just have a question for you. What is going on in baseball right now? I mean, really? The owners are blaming the non-movement of free agents on analytics, or all the pundits are. And really, that's what's being done. They're looking at the numbers, and they're going, well, these guys can't play after 30. Really? You're done? After you're 30 years old? Jacob DeGrom's 30 right now. He's making 17 million bucks this year. He's arbitration eligible next year, and he's a free agent in 2021. Based on everything that's gone on the last couple of years, last year and now this year, in the free agent market, Jason DeGrom, is going to get nothing in his free agent years. And I'll tell you what, that's a disgrace. It's a disgrace to the game. The union was built upon arbitration and free agency. I mean, that was the one thing the owners didn't want to give up was arbitration. And in free agency, Marvin talked about it from day one. We didn't know what the hell he was talking about when he first mentioned it. Well, guess right. what? The owners are attacking that precious right of the players as we speak. How can Manny Machado and Bryce Harper still be on the market? Sure, I know there's egos involved. I know the agents hate each other. That's the reason I've got an agent on the show today. Because I'm not going to ask him if the agents hate each other because I know he's not going to say yes or no. He's not that kind of guy. But we're having an agent on the show to find out what's going on. And a big-time agent, too. But just the same. How about Keichel and Kimbrell? Now you got Machado, Harper, Keichel, and Kimbrell are the big four. Those are the names that everybody talks about. But I've got some others for you. How about Moustakas, Marwan Gonzalez? Logan Morrison, Evan Gaddis, Clay Buckle. There are enough guys out there that aren't getting phone calls enough to field an all-star team. There's something wrong with that. Let's leave ownership alone for a while. What about MLB and the Players Association? I mean, Tony Clark, just a couple of weeks ago, actually had the audacity to propose to MLB to implement the DH in the National League starting this year. Not 2021. Not 2020. This year. What is he, crazy? I mean, come on. Because William DeWitt in the owners' meetings said – we would prefer more action and more offense. Let, let me tell you something, sir. You want more action and offense? Get all your minor league instructors together. Get all your major league coaches together and tell them to stick launch angle 
where the sun don't shine. Teach players how to hit behind runners. Go back and teach people how to bunt to get runners over in bases to put more pressure onto pitchers and the defense. And you're going to see more things happen. You're going to see more excitement on the bases. You're going to see more runs scored. It's not doing it with the DH. You're giving 15 people more jobs. That's all well and good. So that's what the Players Association loves. Don't even get me going. I I just I I go on and on and on about it. You know, when I thought about calling this guy to come on my show, because he's been a friend for a long time, about what's going on with the game, I went right back to his roots, which were my roots with the San Diego Padres organization. And our guest today on Dirty Kurtz Dugout, and I welcome him, is John Boggs, the longtime agent. I, I got a hard time thinking of the guys that he's represented because, and, and continues to represent, by the way. John, welcome to the show. I don't, want to, keep you hold, to I don't you, want to keep How you do holding you on any longer because I can rant with the best of them. You know that. <laughs> You're going good. You don't even need me, you know. <laughs> so how it's about, pleasure being I, know you know, I know you know these numbers, but how about yeah. $900 million negotiated for your players? Yeah, yeah. Wow. In a player list that you can only sit and drool over if you're a memorabilia collector or anybody that wants an autograph. We're talking about the likes of Cole Hamels, uh, Suzuki, Ichiro, as we'll get to him in a minute, Trevor Cahill, of course, Adrian Gonzalez, Alan Trammell, who we all know here in San Diego, Paul Molitor, the Hall of Fame infielder for the Milwaukee Brewers, and, of course, Mr. Padre, Tony Gwynn, which really got you started. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. That was... uh... You talk about beginner's luck. Uh, I was very fortunate and blessed. And uh, it really kind of happened in a circuitous way, but uh, it happened. And uh, Tony uh, gave me the opportunity and believed in me. And uh, hopefully I fulfilled that uh, belief system. And uh, I couldn't have been a more lucky or blessed individual to start this career, which I really didn't intend to do. Uh, uh, but to think about starting out with somebody like a Hall of Famer like Tony Gwynn, I mean, it's almost it's almost crazy. <laughs> it's so when tough. things happen, when things happen, you know, when players are traded, when we acquired Steve Garvey uh, in the winter of '82, uh, right? Uh, everybody's looking forward to him coming down, but nobody's thinking about his entourage. Right. We didn't really right. realize the base that he had built in Los Angeles, right. being a Los Angeles Dodger, and you were a part. Of that base, you were vice president of Garvey Marketing Group at the Correct. time. Yes. So when you say you didn't set out to do what you're doing today, what what right. did you set out to do? Well, I wanted a career in baseball, but you know it's not that easy just to say you want a career in baseball. And I was vice president of Riggs National Bank, you know, at one point in time, and I got to know Steve because. We had family friends in the Dominican Republic, and he was playing on the Lycee Tigers, uh, which you know Dominican very well because I saw you down there with that beautiful Panama hat you had used to wear. You know, I still have that. 
I am telling you, I remember watching <laughs> you uh, going through the lobby of the Haragua Hotel, you know, and, uh, you know, I said, who's that? It's Krupa Vakwa. Oh, wow. Okay, great. And, uh, again, I knew you before you even knew me. Did and, you want to uh, hit on me? You kind of <laughs> sound like you wanted to hit on me. <laughs> I, just, I must I, have been in a good I, pair of shorts. You, no, it was good tight, uh, you know, uh, what's it, what, what do you call those polyester slacks? Oh, good. Poly, yeah, the old you, polyester. Exactly. You and John Travolta, it was like Saturday Night Fever. You know, it was unbelievable. But, uh, you know, it it really came about through the relationship with Steve. And then uh, Steve, uh, when he transitioned to the Padre during free agency uh, in 83, he asked me to come and uh, hit up and uh, help him start every marketing group. So. I was very blessed, and obviously, you know, one of our first clients was Tony Gwynn, and uh, it was predominantly marketing that we are involved with, and I really got the opportunity to have a great relationship with Tony, and we just clicked together, and everything was fantastic, and uh, he unfortunately ran into some problems with his prior agent, and uh, uh, next thing I know, he asked me to be his agent, and that's why it wasn't something I really kind of had planned for or anticipated or really... Uh, you know, I'd studied for it, and I just said, Tony, you know, <laughs> I said, you're going to be my first. He said, that's okay. He says, we'll do this together. And how often does that happen in this day and age? It doesn't. And so it was really, uh, I don't know, a right place, right time with the right person. And hopefully I lived up to his confidence in me. And uh, together we did a lot of great things. And, uh, you know, to this day, it's just uh that was a pivotal point in my life and in my career. And then from that point on, I remember him telling me, remember this, when you represent a player, you work for the player. That's who you work for. And that's the motto I've carried uh, along ever since then, that uh, it's not about, you know, my advancement. It's what's best for the player. Well, I think an example of uh, a lot of people aren't going to know about this, but an example of your creativity as far as uh, working for the players was right. an introduction of Oakley sunglasses into Major League Baseball. Oh, absolutely. With the help of Tony, right? Well, I, yeah. Actually, a good friend of mine, Steve Ross, was working for Fox at the time, and uh, a young man came to him with the Oakley sunglasses, which was kind of funny to me. you think he has a bunch of sunglasses. No, he had a box with a lot of lenses, and the lenses would just snap onto the frames. And, of course, you know, I was a little old school with the flip-down sunglasses for ballplayers, and you know, uh, Steve had introduced me to him, and uh, he said, well, no, you would work, you just wear the sunglasses. And he he'd, uh, described the science and the you know, theory behind it that uh, your lens, your cornea, what have you, would have to adjust. And your seconds of being blinded when you go from sunlight to sunglass. And so the concept with Oakley's is that you would wear them, you know, all the time. So, you would, your you know, your eyes would be already conformed to the transition of the sunlight needed. So I was like, wow, okay. And I just, you know, think about it. I couldn't picture guys wearing sunglasses out there like that. Usually, again, I was old school foot down, you know. And uh, I introduced him to Tony, and uh, that was his main project because, as you well know, Tony put on some sunglasses at that point in time. Everybody thought, well, that might be an edge, and he's a good hitter, so... Let me try them. And it just went like wildfire uh, throughout uh, all of baseball, starting in spring training in Arizona and Yuma, Arizona. And uh, Mark McNabb was the first rep that 
you know, came to me with this, you know, concept. And, uh, you know, Oakley was, you know, it wasn't a very big sunglass company at the time. Uh, and uh, it started to grow and grow and grow. And we saw it grow and turn into a public company at one point in time. And I think the owner then bought it back. I don't know where it is right now, but it was one of the first to basically get involved with that and get Tony started with Oakley Sunglasses. It was his, you know, uh, ability to basically give them a shot and, uh, you know, give them the exposure that they needed. And as you all know, then it just spread like wildfire. And it was Kind of amazing, and that went on to different things. No Fear, I uh, got to know uh, the people at No Fear when they were just kind of a fledgling company, and all of a sudden they started to take off, and, you know, we basically uh, got them involved with a lot of different baseball players, and uh, their product uh, really started, uh, you know, growing in uh, different sports. And in baseball, I mean, you know, there was <laughs> – that was before the uniform police were really uh, active, but all of a sudden some guys, including Mark McGuire, would have no fear, you know, mockingnecks, turtlenecks on, and, uh, and baseball started saying, whoa, wait a minute, what are you guys doing here, you know? And uh, uniform police came came in, and we uh, debated things right, left, and center. But all those nuances, this creativity that you have in baseball, is, it's, it's so unique, too, because your guy, you know, your teammate, Steve Garvey, you know, we introduced the McDonald's wristbands, you know, with the theme of, you know, the McDonald, the Ronald McDonald house. But obviously the golden arches were uh, the predominant uh, theme in all that. And uh, they got a lot of visibility to the point that uh, Major League Baseball kind of tried to pull the plug on that because, I don't know if you remember this, when Chubb Feeney and Steve Garvey had a debate on Good Morning America. And, uh, Chubb had said at the time that, you know, you know, we don't want to turn in the baseball player into like a race car driver with all sorts of uh, advertising all over the uniforms. And it's slowly but surely creeping into that way where, you know, I hear that uh, there'll be a shoe company with their logo on a uniform before long. So, so if looking back, you actually helped create Major League Marketing, Major League Baseball Marketing. <laughs> No, that's way above my pay grade. I would say I had a small role. I'm trying to be creative with the players that I represented. And it's fun to see something grow, and it's fun to see how, you know, a certain aspect of the game has so much potential to generate so much money and so much revenue. And that's what it's all about. It's, it's the money, it's the revenue, and everything else. But, again, as I say, that shouldn't take away from uh, the greatness of the game. And the game is bigger than anything, and we should all try to preserve it and preserve, you know, so many aspects of it, which seem to all of a sudden start to be deteriorating, like taking a guy out at second or the collision at home. You know, those are some of the aspects of the game that were so pure. And for a lot of the, uh, you know, old schoolers, uh, that was the game. It was the toughness, and it was taking that uh, uh, double play away from the opposing team and, you know, taking out the guy at second base, you know, and, you know, taking out the, the catcher at home. But, again, we've turned into a little bit more of a protective society and uh, concussions are not a good thing. We've learned more about what that impact does. So, as I say, we evolve, but at the same time, try to keep the sanctity of the game intact. Well, it's funny you mention that because I think the Players Association, one of the things they introduced to the owners uh, for the next CBA are participation trophies. That even if you lose any one of the playoff series or the World Series, that all the players will still get a little trophy. So, uh, 
I tell you, when that day comes, Kurt, we're all in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> we're all in trouble. The competitive balance will uh, no longer even matter. You know? Well, you talk you talk about old school, and back when Steve came to the Padres right. in 83, uh-huh. he was 34 years old. Right. They wouldn't even be looking at him now. Oh, no, there's no question about it. Uh, it's the game has changed in so many ways, and you know, I don't know if it's uh, you know, people like to say right away it's collusion. You know, if it's collusion, it's got you know, you can mix in a little bit of uh, the analytics and a lot better understanding and a lot uh, more uh, algorithms than we've ever had before in our lifetime. But business and business protocol, I think, has played a major effect, and if you're from the ownership side, obviously you you know look at that in a positive way. From the player side, you know uh, they like to prove themselves, and sometimes they don't get the opportunity to do that. Uh, even if it's on a medical situation, everything has infiltrated the game. Even if a player is even cleared, if he's got a large contract, so to speak, and uh, all of a sudden they look at the player's medicals and they say, you know what? We're not going to pass him on the physical. And you say, why? What do you mean? You know, he finished last year healthy. Well, we see some things that we don't like, and he could be on the DL more than we would want. That's even creeping into the game. And I remember representing Sandy Alomar Jr., and he used to say, hey, man, tell him I can still play. Don't look at the medicals. It look like a train wreck, but I can still play. <laughs> sure enough, he did still play, you know. And, uh, you know, that's missing from the game because you can't, measure intensity you can't measure the fire in the belly uh those are things that are intangibles i don't think there is an algorithm or a way of actually actually you know judging that and also too you can't measure what an impact a veteran has on a ball club especially if you've got a lot of younger players that's a thing that's dissolving rapidly too and then you'll have a clubhouse that really doesn't have a veteran leadership per se. You almost have guys around the same service time, and you miss that because it's like that is the old school guy that's going to teach you how to behave and the do's and don'ts of being a major league ball player. So there's cultural shifts. There's a lot of different shifts, and that's why, I mean, at a certain point in life, you know things will never stay the same, but you just don't you hope that it, there isn't going to be radical differences in what you have grown to love. John Boggs, my guest on Dirty Kurt's Dugout. He's getting splinters in his butt, as I am also. John's been a certified <laughs> agent for Major League Baseball Players Association for, wow, over 29 years. Yes. And he's a registered athlete agent in the state of California. I didn't even know you had to do that. Yeah. Jeez. Let's get, back, let's get back to the winter of 84. You've had, you had a year under your belt here in San Diego. Right. You were getting to know the organization, its players. Certainly were were aware of a fellow named Jerry Capstein. Were you aware of the shenanigans going on with the owners and the Padres signing a goose? I didn't get a lot of that. I wasn't privy to a ton of that. I'm sure there was a ton going on. Uh, you know, you hear stories and, uh, you know, you start seeing, you know, what level of involvement uh, I know. Ballard Smith had a tremendous amount uh, to do with that, uh, you know, along with, I'm sure, the general manager, Jack McKeon, at that time. But uh, I was, as I said, I was more involved with just trying to, you know, get this uh, Garvey marketing group off the ground. But you probably know more than I do. You, you educate me on that. 
Well, I tell you what, Goose and Jerry, Goose mm-hmm. Gossage and Jerry Capstein, right. were in their car going to the airport to fly to Atlanta to sign with the Braves. Uh-huh. When all of a sudden Capstein's phone rang and it was Ballard Smith. Well. And Ballard Smith said, Jerry, if I up my ante 50000 can we sign today? And Jerry told the driver to stop the car, turn around, and go over to Qualcomm Stadium, where Goose signed his contract. Ballard Smith had gotten that tip from Jerry Reinsdorf. No kidding. That Capstein and Goose were on their way to Atlanta because the deal that was in place at that time, we all know it was the first year of collusion. Right. The deal at that time was that two owners would be assigned to one another. And those two owners had to call in whenever deals were made to the certain player that teams were negotiating with. Mm -hmm. Well, Reinsdorf found out about the Braves offering Ted Turner, offering Goose an additional $50,000 more than the Padres did. Wow. And that's when Ballard called and got Goose. If it wasn't for that phone call, they would have never signed Goose. And we probably wouldn't have won the National League Championship that year. And Garve would have never gone on to do what he did here in San Diego. But let's go from Garve for a minute because I'm going to go to Garve in a minute. I don't even think you – that's fascinating right there because, again, you say that I remember being in Jerry's uh, home and begging Goose. And this is funny because you know Goose. I was begging, oh, man, you got to be a Padre. Oh, man, it'd be great here. Oh, it'd be wonderful. Goose turned to me and goes, hey, Johnny, don't beg. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, so, Goose did some great things while he was here. Be an agent. Pardon me? Well, Goose did some great things while he was here. Yes, he did. One, yes, he one, did. Of, them, one of them was throwing Joan in his pool in a chiffon dress and her looking as radiant as ever uh, certainly looked like royalty every time I ever saw her uh, until Kurt, let me expand on that story because I know it very well. You know why I was already in a pool in a suit, my best suit <laughs> Garv and I arrived at Goose's house. And it was uh, two seconds before I realized I was up in the air and I was going into the pool with everything I owned on me. And my last word was, no. And the next thing I know is I'm coming up for air, hitting the bottom of the pool. Joan was going in the pool. That's when I realized, oh, my gosh, what's going on here? And she took it like a champ. She did, didn't she? She took it like a champ. She really did. She had a watch on that probably was worth more than uh, most people's houses there at the time, and she didn't even care. You know, it was uh, it was quite a time that evening and quite a celebration for the city. But I, I'm sorry I had to interrupt you with that because that is one of my fondest moments there. I no, was- no, I'm glad you did. I like that part of the story. <laughs> that was awesome. In fact, years later, it's funny, Cornegosh has sent me a picture. I don't know where she found it, and I'm standing there outside the pool in a puddle and uh, in a drenched suit, which never fit the same after that. I think the chlorine had something to do with it. 
Unbelievable. Well, how about this? You followed this guy around for a long time. And now he's following you. (laughs) Steve Garvey's coming on next, Boggsy. Oh, I love it. He is. I didn't want to tell you because I figured it would probably affect the interview with you, and I didn't want that to happen. You know, Kurt, I love that. Are you kidding? I'm, I'm, I'm on deck for the car. That means i got to get on base so he can drive me in. No, you, he'll drive you in. He'll drive you in. But I know you've got to get away, and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Don't call Garv right now because I'm going to be calling him within the next minute to have yeah, him on the show. But it was it was surely a pleasure. Thanks well, for uh, sharing everything. I more time, but I want to say he's the reason that I've had this success because he's the one that brought me to San Diego. Well, you know, him, it's funny. So. It's funny because uh, he's the reason I had a lot of my success also. Because if it was if it wasn't for him at the home run off of Lee Smith, then none of us would have been afforded the opportunity in the '84 World Series. So, um, so true. It's all hey, good. You talk about cheering. Uh, you talk about cheering for uh, each row. In that game, I'll never forget it. I had my father-in-law, and my wife, and I forget who else was with us, standing on the chairs, singing, yelling "Cub Busters." As you well know, that chant in '84 <laughs> when that ball went out of the stadium, and that was one of the most exciting baseball experiences I've had too. So, '84 was a great uh, year. Your home run in the series was a great, uh, you know, uh, situation too in memory. Uh, Kurt, and uh, it's really a pleasure being on with you. Bogsy, thanks a lot, as always, and uh, hopefully I'll see you real soon. That sounds great. You take care now. Thanks a lot, Bogsy. You got it. Bye-bye. My next guest, as anticipated, 10-time All-Star, World Series champion, National League Most Valuable Player, two-time NLCS Most Valuable Player, four-time Gold Glove, Surprised there's not more there. He received the Roberto Clemente Award in 1981. Number six is retired. My roomie, Dirty Kurtz dugout, Steve Garvey. Garve, my friend, how are you? How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm always perked up when I talk to you on the phone. Of course you should be. You were my roomie, remember? <laughs> Okay, I didn't tell you. Uh, I didn't tell my previous guest who was coming on after him, because he always followed you. So I didn't want to make him feel high and mighty that you were following him. But I just hung up with Bogsy. Did you really? Yeah. Well, you're going you're going in alphabetical order today. So we we've got a whole show that seems to be built around Steve Garvey. I mean. Yeah, and the, the big agent, you know. And even though, even though I love that, um, yeah. yeah, John had a lot of good things to say. Uh, good, good. Uh, quizzically, Any from uh, from John. Pardon me. Any insight from John? No, actually, because I think uh, I'm glad you asked that because uh, I think as agents, as former players, as fans, uh, we're all as miffed as as anybody else out there with what's going on in the game. Um, the movement or non-movement, as you would, of free agents last year and, and this year and with the guys that are out there. Um, I, I, mentioned, I did mention something to John during the course of uh, us talking that when you signed your contract with the Padres, 
you were 34. I mean, right. can you imagine being a 34-year-old free agent today? I'd have to uh, stand on a corner you know, with a hat and some old baseball cards and see if anybody remembered me. You know? Yeah, and I'd be your little monkey on your shoulder. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> or a leprechaun. You know, I'm Irish, so I'll take the leprechaun. Oh, boy. Leave me alone. You know, but it's the evolution of uh, sabermetrics and, and the metrics of the game, which we, we all... Uh, had a better insight through Moneyball, the general public, but we knew uh, kind of what was going on, the crunching of numbers, uh, and a, a, a discipline to be able to measure players, especially, uh, and most of the, the the guys that are more cerebral as far as uh, front office concerned may not have played the game at the ultimate level. Um, and it's always difficult to make, you know, make a, make an understanding of, of an athlete and capabilities and reactions on the field and what they're thinking. So numbers uh, are the easiest route to go for uh, for some type of insight. And now it's um, it's gone down to the level of, uh, of signing players. You know, how long, how much, uh, the economics of the game, uh, trying to forecast the future. Um, you know, what was once 34, like myself, you know, and I, and I was still in the midst of a consecutive game streak, uh, might be 29 now or 28. So, and then, you know, you remember too, the, uh, the number of international players, uh, who played with us at that time was significantly less, uh, the emergence of the international market, Dominican Republic, 13 academies there run by, you know, each run by a major league team. Uh, and the emergence of the Cuban players uh, have, have given Major League Baseball more options, a constant turnover. Uh, so, you know, with metrics also comes a platooning, so to speak, uh, of players, uh, so that you, you know, look at the Dodgers last year, look at the World Series when they, it was a game one against Sale where they had uh, seven or eight right-handed hitters, and then by the third or fourth inning, they they brought the righty in. They had to switch off over to the left side. And by the seventh inning, I think Dave Roberts said nobody at the bench. So uh, it's just the use of numbers. Now it's trickled down to salaries and, and length of time. Well, I think analytics and the way they play the game today has lost the Dodgers the last two World Series. That's just personal thought. Interesting, yeah. But uh, could be. Yeah, you, you mentioned the, you mentioned the sale, a sale uh, yeah. game. And uh, loading the lineup up with right-handed hitters and then having to make changes. I mean, you know, as well as I do, players get in the flow of things. You know, blood right. gets flowing and testosterone's out there on the bench. And all. And then all of a sudden it's, I mean, the air is just out of everybody's balloon. And you got somebody else that's that's trying to get ready. And you can talk about preparation all you want to and knowing that there's a chance that you might go into the game. But you don't know when. And it's, uh, it's just a different thing. Plus, I think uh, we saw with Houston and we saw last year with Boston that small ball played its way into the World Series, and the Dodgers couldn't play small ball. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you're right, Kirk. And, and I've always said we, we kind of kid in the Gary household because, you know, I had all these girls first and then finally two boys, Ryan and Sean, they played baseball, and I used to, I used to tell them, you know, if you pull the ball, you're probably going to drive a Taurus, which is okay. But if you go the opposite way, 
you got a good chance to drive it a Mercedes. <laughs> I like I mean, that. I'm going to use that way. when I get home. Well, yeah, it was the only one I thought could resonate a little bit. Again, you know, you can uncle go the big car. Now, if you go the other way, you could drive a Bentley. You know, that's how you can have a situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you mentioned Sean and Ryan. You've, yeah. You have beautiful Olivia. And then, of course, gorgeous Candace. Are you guys empty nesters now? No. No, they're always bouncing back. Well, Sean's in Michigan State. He's a sophomore, so okay. you know, he's still uh, kind of home. Ryan uh, um, is finishing up his real estate here in the desert. He'll be going to Los Angeles in about six weeks uh, uh, with a new project we're working on there and, uh, and in real estate. And Olivia... Um, is now the sports anchor at NBC Palm Springs. You know she what? Is, uh, I just saw that. Con- I'm glad you brought that up. That's awesome. And uh, I threw congratulations out there. That's, that's really cool. It really is. We're all happy for her. And, uh, you know, she's got a, uh, a full-time job, which we're even more happy. <laughs> but she had uh, she gone to Arizona State and Arizona and then got in the uh, Cronkite School of uh, Journalism and focused on sports journalism. Worked for... Uh, Spectrum a couple of summers ago, did some PR uh, with the Dodgers spring training, then had a resume and uh, all of a sudden went to work for the NFL and was doing uh, the red zone on Sundays. Really? I'm glad uh, I'm glad a person by the name of Garvey got a job with the Dodgers. That's, that's right. That's good to hear. Part time. Yeah. Yeah. That's good to hear. I'm still out there. You know, I'm available for the Padres, too. You know, but uh yeah, it's just, uh, it's great. And she's worked very hard. The red zone was very demanding. Um, you know, three days of preparation for a Sunday for eight, almost nine hours. So we always said, you know, she always wanted to be in front of the camera, but I said, you have to learn the back of the camera, the production first. Uh, and all of a sudden she got a chance uh, in the desert here and she's been at it two weeks and, uh, you know, she's, she's really having fun. So she'll go to spring training for four or five days and get a bunch of interviews there and come back and, uh, entertain the Coachella Valley and in the world of sports. So we're, we're proud of them. That's awesome. You know, one of my fondest memories of uh, your former employer, employee, I should say, uh, John Boggs, uh, he was vice president of Garvey Marketing Group when you came here uh, from the Dodgers via free agency, was up in Park City, Utah, at one of your ski events, and if I'm not mistaken, I don't. I might be wrong here, but I thought that you might have met Kansas up there at one That's of those right. events. Yeah, yeah. I always say, um, you know, being a baseball player, and and, and uh, Ballard Smith have talked, and I have talked about this over the years. You know, I was an Irish skier. I skied the greens, which you know aren't very steep. <laughs> and uh, and but uh, all of a sudden, in nineteen uh, gosh. 1988, I guess, uh, was putting on an event for Special Olympics, and and I saw this uh, very attractive woman in skiing down the hill, or her skis never came apart. And then I was doing the races with uh, with the great Sign Erickson, and I turned around, and she and some girlfriends were there, and they better that she wouldn't give me a big kiss, and she called me over, and of course I had to be a gentleman, walked over, and she just grabbed my head and. Gave me the big kiss and turned to the girlfriends, and they all cheered. And uh, I said, "Well, this is an opportunity to get them all in, inside the ropes with hot chocolate." <laughs> so, and uh, you actually yeah. invited you invited them to the event that night. Is that? I did. I did. Remember. That's when uh, I remember. That's yeah. what I remember. Mm-hmm. 
I remember her and maybe four to five other girls walking into the Stein Erickson's Lodge, which is gorgeous, by the way. And there was a big staircase. And I, I mean, it, it was almost a royal entrance the way it was done. And everybody just stopped <laughs> in their funny, tracks. It was really funny. It was funny. Well, it's cost me ever since then. It's so, cost so, uh, you, yeah. It's cost you a, a heck of a life. I but, was always, uh, I was always you know, kidding around that I caught the the, uh, the tips of my skis and ended up in a in a lump in the snow. And she was gracious enough to stop and pick me up and dust me off. And I uh, I took her for hot chocolate. And the rest is history. We're going to be married thirty years on Monday. Wow, so, that's uh, awesome! Congratulations. Very blessed. Yeah. So I'm a green, I'm a green too. I'm a green too. And, but uh, one of my fondest memories, like I said, with Boggsy was up there and I talked him in to go and skiing with myself and my six-year-old son at the time. And what he didn't realize was we were setting him up to go from a certain part of the slope uh, where it was a green to the blue section and then down underneath the chairlifts where my son loved to ski. He was a maniac. And Boggsy ended up. Well, he had the right genes, right? He, he, no, no, it wasn't (laughs) me. Yeah, it was him. And then we turned around and Boggsy was behind us and you could see the fear through his goggles. And it was, it was hilarious. And he ended up, it took me about 20, 25 minutes to get him out of the snow because he, he went in heads first into the snow that was probably eight feet deep at the time. But that was the, that was the greatest thing in the world. And he goes, that's it. He goes, I'm never going to trust you again. I remember him coming back to the lodge and he was kind of skiing out. You know, his buddy made those, those big wide turns. He looked like uh uh, Bigfoot coming in, and we finally found him. But, uh, but just to mention, John, you know, we're, he's my dearest friend and dear friend of yours. I mean, when when he was uh, and helped start Garvey, you know, marketing group, and then he went off and and uh, got into the agency business with with Tony Gwynn and a number of quality clients over the years. And he he never wanted to get too big where he wouldn't uh, lose that personal touch and the ability to give you know, personal service as well as professional service to the, uh, to the players you represented. But I've, I've always said, and of course we're all a partial, but, uh, if, if you were to put your son into the hands of, of one agent and know that he would be taken care of both the things he did on the field and off the field, it would be John Box. And uh, I've been proud of him over the years and you know, it's it's a lot of babysitting, and they drive you crazy. But uh, he's hanging in there and dealing with the with the changing tides of like we just talked about, changing tides of baseball and the business of the game. But uh, but again, he'll he'll be he'll be okay. He'll be the one that's standing when the rest of them are crying and wailing and <laughs> off to the sides. So, yeah, I think I've already on. I've already done what you suggested. I've turned. Uh... Good. Yeah, I've turned over one of my sons to Boggsy already. And he can have the second one, too, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if he'll want him. <laughs> so let's go back a couple of years. Uh, does Jack DeLauro ring a bell? Oh, absolutely. He does? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if you had asked me before I looked this up yesterday, I would have never, I would have never known my, or who it was for me. But you, you remember, huh? 
Well, you know, you always remember the first and last, and uh, and it, it, baseball players have a tremendous memory. I know you do of times and pitches and hits, and people say, "How do you do this with eight, nine thousand at bats or whatever?" But uh, but Jack was my first on September first of nineteen sixty nine. My first day up, I came up from Albuquerque, and it was three nothing in the bottom of the seventh. So the uh, the Mets were ahead of us. And uh, Walter Austin looked at me. He said, "You ready, kid?" And I, I looked at him. And said, yes, sir. And I grabbed a, a helmet. <laughs> and it was a double ear flap. Uh, not a lot of double ear flaps in '69. <laughs> and uh, I barely squeezed it on my head. And I grabbed the bat. I didn't have any bats from Albuquerque. And uh, so I went up there. And he's a little crafty lefty. Typical, you know, run the ball away, slider, and changeup. So the first pitch, he's a little cutter, and I turn on it and just missed the foul ball by about 10 feet, I guess. And uh, I go, okay, all right, turned on that one. Then the next one was a little runner away, and, uh, and you know, I could pretty well hit the ball to all fields and got a piece of it and sliced it down the line and just missed the foul ball by about 10 feet. And I'm thinking, not bad, I got him sized up now. So I got in the batter's box, and he wound up, and... He threw a pitch that I, I, I thought was uh, a little bit off speed, and it turned out to be a screwball. I'd never seen a screwball before. <laughs> and I went to swing at it, and you know how they dive away. The ball dove away from me, and I extended and flipped my wrist and, and missed the ball, and the bat went uh, over Wayne Garrett. Remember the old third baseman? Oh, yeah. Yep. And literally javelined in the grass in, in short left field. And uh, I just kind of stood there, and the catcher looked at me, and he said, Wow. I said, yeah, look at that, the bat. And uh, I walked back to the dugout empty-handed. You know, there's nothing worse than walking back, and there are probably about 20,000 people still hanging in there. And Walter Olson was at the top of the steps. He said, well, kid, that was pretty auspicious. And I looked at him, he says, it set a record for a bat throw fair at Dodger Stadium. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. And he says, you know, he said, uh, you'll probably get a couple thousand hits before it's all over. And uh, he said, get them next time. And I went down the steps and ended up, you know, 19 years later with uh, 2,600 hits and a very blessed career. Well, my first was a crafty lefty, too, yeah. in, in Fenway Park. Mm-hmm. Bill Lee. <laughs> and, and I just wanted to look at mine just to make sure that I didn't do what you did. Because I wanted to be able to talk to you about it. If I would have struck out, I wouldn't have mentioned this to you. But I, I, I managed to ground out. <laughs> so, Did you? That a lot better. Yeah, I didn't get a hit, base hit until my second time up. Mm-hmm. So it was good. But I, I came short of the 2,600. Yeah. Dirty Kurtz yeah. Dugout, I'm with Steve Garvey. And he told you something that I really didn't expect. But knowing that you played in five World Series... And that was the only one you won. Then I can see your point. But naturally, everybody thinks of you not only with the World Series and the All-Stars MVPs and things like that, but also the home run in 1984 when you were with San Diego against Lee Smith and the Cubs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, there were really two different moments. They could categorize differently. Obviously, the World Series, the championship finally consummates you as a team player. The moment that that I I believe affected the most people um, 
positively for us was the home run. I, I think, and and, uh, and I honored for, for me to do it, and it's a great part of my history too, but it was a great defining moment, I think, in, in Padre history. Because before that, the Padres had never won the big game, never won the game that looked like was going to be the difference maybe in, in a series or something. And they never got to that ultimate moment like that. And, and you and I both know we, we lost the first two at Wrigley and, and uh, we're on a plane coming back. And I remember standing in the aisle and, and Tony and I are talking and, and he says to me, Garb, you know, it looks like it's been a good year and, you know, it'll be tough. I said, Tony, we got it right where we want him. And he looked at me like, boy, Garb is getting old. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and I had been thinking, at least we're going home. If we had been going to, to, to Wrigley down 0-2, it might have been a different story. But then you remember the fans waiting for us at the stadium. And then game three, oh, yeah. which was you know a battle, and we pulled that out. Game four, uh, a great baseball game. and my, my biggest single night, and of course the walk-off home run. But the fans cheering for 12, 15 minutes, that's a long time for essentially a standing ovation. And uh, I think at that moment they actually believed that we were going to win, that we were going to beat the, the Cubs. And I'm, I'm not so sure they ever believed that before because they had never seen a team like ours that had the balance. And, you know, you coming off the bench and filling in, and a young Gwen, you know, Templeton in the prime of his career, and Gossage and Nettles, Garvey and Kennedy and all these guys, the pitching staff. Uh, so that the next day, even though we jumped off to, what, three nothing lead uh, with Setcliffe pitching, it was 16-1, and I think the fans still felt that we were going to win. They were still confident we were going we to find a way. And, and lo and behold, we did. And, and uh, you talk about last-out celebrations. I, I can still see those pictures. And, and of course, um, you, know, you, were, you were pretty instrumental you know, in the things you did, especially early in the uh, World Series. But we look back at that, that Tiger team now, and it was one of the best over, a, I would think, a 25-year period. And they were arrested waiting for us. And, you know, we uh, we had to play up until almost the, the day before the World Series started. But, yeah, we uh, should have knocked more guys down. <laughs> no, I'm just, right. I'm just kidding. You know, I remember and asking way, you, I was never. down nowadays. That, that, that's for the next Oh, yeah. I, mean, I am calmed down. Absolutely. I, I had never been a part of what we went through uh, that night after Game 4. I had never been a part of that. And I remember asking you the next day, what was it like running around the bases? And you told me that between first and third or, or second and third, I can't remember which one you said, you said you told me you didn't remember anything. It was like you went into a vacuum. Yeah. And then well, I got to experience yep. the same feeling uh, a few days later uh, in Game 2 of the World Series because I really don't remember anything between first and me approaching third base and shaking Ozzy Virgil's hand. So yeah. it was kind of uh, uh, it was pretty cool that that I had asked you about that, and then without even realizing, I experienced the same thing. Yeah. Well, it's I always say it's that sweet spot in time, you know, and in, in that game that you know it all come together for me, and 
and uh, and you at those two great you know World Series games. Uh, but I was watching the ball as I left home plate, and I yeah you know, I could play home runs, and and I thought it was it was good enough, and it was almost like that. Remember the natural where the ball kind of you see it going up before it hits the lights and the mm-hmm. explosion. You know, you can, you can, I can really see the ball clearly. And then it starts to come down, and I'm, you know, 15 feet from first base, and Henry Cotto leaps up on the wall, and I'm thinking, oh, my Lord, this is going to be the greatest catch. <laughs> I know. He was trying, <laughs> wasn't he? Right? Yeah, he made a great effort. And, of course, he did about five feet above it, and once it hit, and then I – took that step and raised my arm and just really for the fans. And, um, yeah, I don't remember much about, you know, going almost to third base. And then, uh, and then, and then you're absorbing the moment coming and all you guys, you know, everybody was waiting at home plate. And, uh, as I get to home plate, somebody jumps up and comes down, catches the back of my shoe and my shoe goes flying off. <laughs> and here I am with one sanitary foot and another in the shoe. And I, I grab it, you know, right away, and uh, and there's great pictures of uh, you know that celebration home, you guys lifting me up, and and so forth. And uh, but that's what sports is all about. You know, we, I've always said we're in the memory business. Memories we create, and that we, you know, it's the greatest currency in life for memories. And you have them, and I have them, but more importantly, the fans have them, and that's what brings them back. So I I ask everybody listening that uh, YouTube. This home run that Garvin and I are talking about right now against Lee Smith, um, October. What date? What was the date, Garv? Uh, was it six? sixth? Okay. I think it was the sixth, October sixth, nineteen eighty four. Cubs versus Padres. You won't believe where the pitch is. Mm-hmm. That that's the thing that impressed me the most. Certainly not that night because I wasn't. Uh, I couldn't see the location of the pitch, but going back and looking at it years later, uh, which I have quite a few times, the, the amazing part about it is the fact that Lee Smith threw so hard and where the ball was when Steve hit it. Um, it was out and up over the plate and it was probably pretty close to your shoulder blades. And how you hit it out of the ballpark, I'll never know. But you know what, my friend? I appreciate that because uh, you made it uh, a possibility for me to add on a little bit of legacy to my career. And uh, I certainly appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. You well, mentioned roommate. Mention you mentioned. Thing, I, have, I have to mention one thing, though. Yeah, go ahead. I, Please I do. I bad for you because you had hurt, I think, your groin. And, uh, and, then you hit a ball in the gap, and uh, as you're rounding third, uh, the wind caught your sail. <laughs> Is that what you call it? <laughs> I'm, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. And, uh, and by the time you got to third, um, I think it was more of a plop, and then you crawled in. But I, I think you hurt your other groin, too. <laughs> I felt so bad for you. But... Uh, but, you know, that was the way you were playing in those games, and it was all out. And I think by the time you got to Detroit, you were bandaged up. And uh, I remember they, we had an off day. We were taking batting practice, and everybody goes, where's Curdy? And uh, and I said, well, he's holding court with the press number one with a couple of ice bags. 
it no, is. that's when Dick Dent put me in the whirlpool full of ice. I mean, are you kidding me or something? You know how painful that is. I can't even explain it. I don't even want to think about it because, you know what? I pulled my groin many, many times throughout my lifetime. That's the only two times that I pulled it playing baseball. Right. So it's right. Uh, that's another story for another show. Uh, well, I, I never, you know, whirlpools were always hot tubs, right? So when I when I come over to the uh, Padres, um, Dick Dent was a big, that was the beginning of the ice movement, you know. But I, I'd never spent any whirlpool until the first road trip. And we go to Candlestick in San Francisco, and uh, I'm out there, and I figure, well, you know, I'm going to go go warm up a little bit in the uh, in the whirlpool. Because it's cold, so I I go there and I take I take my first foot in there and I go oh my lord crazy fixes ah don't be a baby get in there so you know you ease yourself in the cold water and uh, I finally get in I'm only going to stand five minutes and uh, and Dick Williams comes up and he's kind of standing there and he's weighing himself and he looks at me and he said uh, what's the matter I can't talk. <laughs> I just can't. I said, we're a candlestick. The chill index is going to be 38 tonight, and you've got an ice bath for it. I don't get it. He says, dry off and get out there. Yeah, that was that was Dick. <laughs> the lieutenant. lieutenant. Right. Lieutenant. Yeah, that was funny. That was funny. I couldn't talk. It was so cold. He used to love right. to see people suffer. Right. You know, if you, if you needed to, uh, to get worked on, he would do it as hard as as he possibly could. So you would say he would like to make people sweat is, is what he liked to do. Garv, I really, I really appreciate you coming on, buddy. Thank you. Been a pleasure. Been a pleasure. Thanks. Say hello to uh, lovely Candace for me and all the kids. And uh, now that you're, you're a partial empty nester. So, so you have, so you have room for a golfing buddy every now and then, right? That's right. Okay. Come on over the hill. Come over to La La Land over Good. in the desert. We'll I'll put you to work. I'll do that. <laughs> okay. Garv, thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon, my You're friend. Dirty. Absolutely. God bless. Bye-bye. Steve Garvey, my guest on Dirty Kurt's Dugout. Everyone, I can't tell you how much uh, I appreciate you listening. And please, go to patreon.com slash Kurt Bavacqua. There's also iTunes and Spotify. And trust me, if you look around at the Kurt Bavacqua Show on Twitter, in Facebook, Dirty Kurt's Dugout, you're going to find it, and you'll see and listen to some great shows. Again, thanks for listening. This is Kurt Bavacqua saying goodbye, everybody. Talking baseball, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was.